Well, it's a joy to be back with you all again this morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. And if you're visiting with us from out of town, we hope you don't have to travel later today. But we are blessed to have you. And if you do have to travel, we'll pray for you when you're tempted to anger in the security line at uh, Dulles Airport or on the road. Thanksgiving is a great opportunity to count your blessings. Thanksgiving is a time, if you are a Christian, to thank God for all the way he has, ways he has blessed you and your family. It's a good thing, I think, that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in this holiday season, and many of you, are, I'm sure, are struggling, we're almost forced on Thanksgiving to consider the many ways that God has been faithful to us and the things that we should be thankful for. But it seems sometimes that America actually needs a national holiday to remember to be thankful. Thanksgiving began as a feast of thanksgiving to God for a successful harvest. And when it became a federal holiday under Lincoln's presidency, it was done so that Americans would take a day to honor the God who blessed them. Even then, in 1863, Americans seemed too busy, too distracted, too hardened to take time to thank God for the many blessings he had bestowed on them. Listen as I read a portion of President Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation from October 3rd, 1863. It says this, The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensitive, insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. A president said this. Continuing on, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. And he closes saying, it has seemed to me fit and proper that they, that is the gifts, should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. That is why we have a federal holiday, to honor God. President Abraham Lincoln made an appeal to the American people that because of what God had done, how faithful he had been, that the people should be thankful. It's awesome, but sad at the same time. Because America seemed to have forgotten God's faithfulness. They had to be reminded of his steadfast love via a national holiday. Now for us as Christians, the hope would be that we are thankful to God and praise him far more often than once a year. Hopefully more often than once a week on Sunday mornings. But the sad truth is that we need reminding too. And our passage this morning is a psalm, which is a call for God's people to be thankful. Psalm 100 
So if you'll turn to Psalm 100 or on your phones, look it up. If you don't have either one of those things, I will speak slowly. So Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. It's a bit difficult to discern much about the context surrounding this psalm. There are things we can surmise. But unlike passages from most books of the Bible, this passage isn't written within any historical story that we can be sure about. Some psalms are written by David, which help us at least set it into a moment of the Old Testament. Some anonymous psalms at least you know, make mention of something that was happening historically. But not this one. So what do we know? This psalm actually has a heading or title, which I read, that is part of the Hebrew text, meaning it wasn't added by your translators. A psalm for giving thanks. So we at least know what the author's purpose was when writing this psalm. And we know it was addressed to the Israelites, the prone-to-wander people of God. Yes, they were a people who remembered God in times of need or calamity or after huge military victories, but it was also a people who grumbled, who forgot him and broke his laws daily. So it's safe to say that this psalm was written to remind the wayward Israelites to give thanks and praise their faithful God. We also can be fairly sure that this was a liturgical psalm, meaning that it was used by the Jews in the services at the temple in Jerusalem. It is thought by most to also be a hymn, so it was likely sung. In fact, the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 100, Nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. So that's what we know about the psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving to remind God's people to thank him. But let's look at what the text itself reveals to us. I want to look at three things from the text. First, Israel should joyfully praise the Lord. Second, Israel should approach the Lord with thanksgiving. And third, we're going to look at the reason why they should do those things. And then we'll look to apply it to us as the church. So first, Israel should joyfully praise the Lord. The first stanza of our passage is one of exultation and joy. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Notice the three commands in this stanza. There's actually seven commands in the psalm, but there are three here. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. This is not soft language. These are not suggestions. The psalmist is telling the Israelites to do these things. First, they are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. 
the original Hebrew really says something more akin to shout to the Lord. So envision a joyful shout, one that you might hear at a football game, or uh, it's probably best envisioned as a picture of loyal subjects shouting when their benevolent king appears. Actually, in Psalm 98, just a couple psalms before this, you get the exact picture. Uh, In verse 6, it says, With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And again, with the context of our psalm in mind, you get the picture that this command is telling God's people to shout joyfully when gathered together in the temple. This is not asking for meek, reserved, muted worship, but unadulterated praise, no holds barred. The second command in the opening stanza is to serve the Lord with gladness. The word gladness could also be rendered with joy. So again, Israel is told to do something with joy for the Lord. In this case, to serve him. Serving him, as we looked at last week, really means doing his will, living out his commands. Some translators use the word worship here instead of serve. And the truth is those words are very closely tied. Serving the Lord is to worship him. We sometimes have a pretty narrow view of worship, right? We call the songs we sing in church the worship. The people who stand up at front and play music are the worship leaders or the worship team. And that's true. Singing songs to the Lord is a form of worship, one prescribed in the Bible. But the Bible paints worship with a much broader brush. Worship really involves living your life in such a way that you bring glory to him. Whether that's something mundane like being gracious and kind to friends and strangers or something more extraordinary like sharing the gospel with a coworker, or going on a mission to an unreached nation with the gospel. If you are serving God and his kingdom with your life, you are worshiping him. And if you are properly worshiping him, you should be serving him. In fact, Paul in Romans 12.1 shows us how tied these concepts are when he exhorts us that nothing short of lives lived as sacrifices to him, our bodies presented as living sacrifices, counts as true worship that's acceptable to God. So Israel is to serve God by joyfully living lives that are worshiping him through obedience. So there's a third command in this opening stanza, and that is to come into his presence with singing. Israel is told to worship God through their service after being told to make a joyful noise. And here they're told to worship God by singing. There's works and faith together there, service and singing. And again, in the context of our passage, the Israelites are being invited to come into the presence of of God by coming to the temple. Come to the temple. Be in the presence of the Almighty God. Worship Him with song, is what this psalm is saying. Worshippers, though, were able only to come to the outer courts of the temple. There was a temple with room inside and actually a back room, which we'll talk about more. And out front, there was a court surrounded by walls and columns. Worshippers were only able to come to the outer courts. The priests were allowed to enter the, enter the temple proper to perform certain rituals. And then there was a back room, the holiest of holies, that only the high priest on one specific day of the year was ever allowed to enter. And that, that room was separated 
from the rest of the temple by a big thick curtain or veil. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which was the place where God dwelt among his people. So the psalmist is telling people to come into the presence of God and sing, and yet they could only come so close. Keep that in mind as we continue on. The singing here, again, is best defined as shouting joyfully in song. So come to the temple and shout joyfully in song. We just got a picture of that in the passage that Jordan read for us in Revelation 4. The heavenly beings in heaven are in his presence singing of the holiness of God, praising him, shouting joyfully. So these first two verses are all about joy. Joyfully shout, joyfully serve, joyfully sing in his presence. The second thing we want to look at is that Israel should approach the Lord with thanksgiving. We're going to skip a stanza here and go right to verse 4 to look further at what Israel is being asked to do. This point will be a bit briefer. We get three more commands here, though. Enter his gates. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The exaltation continues here. And the theme of coming into God's presence continues here. This is a call for God's people to come together to worship him with thankfulness. Enter the gate of the temple. Enter into the courts where the sacrifices are made. Come near and worship God. One could imagine that coming to the temple to offer sacrifices could become a routine thing. A listless and passionless part of daily life in the Old Testament times. It's easy to see these rules, these prescriptions for proper sacrifices becoming a bit robotic because they had to happen every time you sinned. Every day you'd be doing the same old thing. But the psalmist is calling the people of God to remember that these offerings, these required sacrifices in the court, are reasons to be thankful, come with thankfulness. This is God's system of sacrifice, we touched on this last week, that he has set up so that the sins of his people could be paid for. The rebellious, profane, sinful behavior of the Israelites should have resulted in death. Instead, God has provided a way to be made clean. How could they ever let that become run-of-the-mill? How could that become routine? The psalmist is saying, you better be praising his name and thanking him up and down as you bring your sacrifice to this temple. Well, we've already transitioned to the third thing, the reason why the Israelites were to do these things, why they were supposed to come to God in the temple with praise, joy, and thanksgiving. So let's read the second and fourth stanzas. That's verse three and five, which really gives us the reason for why they should be joyful and sing and serve the Lord. I'll read these again for you. Verse three, know, no, that's our last command. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse 5. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Again, he starts off with this command, no. So the joyful praise for the Lord starts with a knowledge of God, of who he is. That's the reason that they should be joyful and thankful. First, uh, there's three things I want to briefly just touch on here. First, God is our creator. He made us and we are his. We belong to him. 
We don't have to stretch our minds very far to see how recognizing him as creator is linked to praising him. Today, the theory of evolution goes hand in hand with atheistic, humanistic thought. If people believe that there is no creator, if we are all here by chance, by coincidental chemistry, then it is no wonder why they won't praise or even acknowledge that there is a God. But if you know that he fashioned you, created you uniquely, and yet in his image, and you let that sink in, you will praise him. You will praise him for the way your heart beats without you telling it to. You will thank him for giving you breath each morning. So knowing that God is creator should cause Israel to praise him joyfully. Secondly, in verse 3, the psalmist reminds the Israelites that they are God's people, his sheep. Yes, he created them, but he also chose them. They are his. Apart from all other nations, he chose them so that he would be their God and they would be his people. Despite his knowing that they would wander from him, he picked them to protect, to show mercy to, to love. He cares for them like A shepherd cares for sheep. Describing God's people as sheep, as you probably know, is common in the Bible and also apt. Sheep are helpless, wandering, unwise animals. So a shepherd must be caring, patient, watchful, protective, and wise. And God is all those things to his people who are very much like the sheep. He is a good shepherd. And knowing that should cause us to praise God. Something else we see here is that the psalmist tells us that the Lord is God. Do you notice that? The Lord is God. Why would he tell us that? What is that even saying? It's like saying that the dog is a canine or the lake is a body of water. It's like, wait, what is this saying? But wait. Lord, like we talked about last week, is the word Yahweh. Remember that? The personal name of God that he gave the Israelites to let them know that he was personal and that they were loved. But the word translated God here is the word Elohim. I don't want to get too technical, but this is important. Elohim, that word represents or emphasizes God's majesty, his greatness, his power. It is wonderful to know that God has chosen you and loves you and is the covenant God of promise, but we cannot and should not forget that he is almighty God. God is not our buddy or someone that we have a casual relationship because he knows us so well. He knows what makes me tick. It's God. He is someone to be feared. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one with the power to create everything out of nothing with a word. If we think too lowly of God, we will not praise him. But the amazing truth is that God, who is sovereign over the entire universe, who existed before time, who controls world events, who knows every hair on your head, who has numbered every grain of sand, cares about you. Almighty God would come close to us and know his people in a special way as Lord? That should cause our hearts to burst into praise. How could they, the Israelites, not be thankful? 
Thirdly, in verse 5, we see that the Israelites need to know that the Lord is good. The last two lines of verse 5 flesh that out a little bit more. How is he good? He has everlasting steadfast love, and he is faithful to all generations. God's steadfast love is his kindness, his mercy, his patience, his unending love. His love will not stop towards his people. Think about it. He has, he has loved them, as we just saw, by mercifully providing a sacrificial system to forgive them over and over. He protects and keeps them. Think of all the Old Testament passages where we see victory for the Israelites only by God's intervention. He is patient. He dealt with their rebellion for generations. When we talk about God's faithfulness, this is where this passage, I think, comes alive for us as Christians. This is where we, as the church, begin to understand our role in this psalm. And understand that we're not just listening to a poem or song about the Israelites coming to offer sacrifices at the temple. This is about God's people, then Israel, and now us, the church, approaching him because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness here is talking about God's reliability, his steadiness, his truthfulness. He has been faithful to all generations. So how has he been faithful to us? He is patient with us. He has been merciful with us. Despite our continued sin, he has not left us. He has not disowned us. In fact, he has invited us into his family as adopted sons and daughters, even when we sin against him. How has he done this? Through Jesus. That's the answer of how God has been faithful, reliable, and true to all generations. God made covenants and promises to his people throughout the Bible, and he is faithful to keep those promises, even to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. He is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace that God promised Adam and Eve, that a deliverer would crush Satan. We belong to that great nation promised to Abraham because of Christ. God's promise that David's house would always have a king on the throne is proven true because Christ, from the line of David, is on the throne as our king. God is faithful to keep his promises. Jesus is also how God's steadfast love endures forever. God's love did not stop with Israel. He made a way for people to come to him and live with him for eternity. He never gave up on us, left us to perish. Jesus is the gift he showered on us. Jesus is the manifestation of his amazing, steadfast love. But actually, it's not just verse 5 that points to Jesus. This whole psalm points to Jesus. Let me show you just a few other things. In verse 4, the Israelites, as we mentioned, were only allowed into the outer court of the temple complex. But Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus, we have access to not just the courts, but to God himself. Let me read Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 for you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain... That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When Jesus died, the temple veil, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing the access that we now have through Jesus to God. We enter through Jesus. He is the gate, verse 4, the gate or the door. John 10, 9 tells us that. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So now, because of Jesus, we can enter his courts and enter his very throne room to joyfully praise him. We enter only through the gate that is Jesus. There is no other way to approach him. And Jesus talks about pastures there, just like in verse 3 of our passage. He calls himself the good shepherd right after that uh, passage we just read from John 10. For those of us who have trusted in him for our salvation, he is our shepherd, our good shepherd, who laid down his life for ours, who knows us, who accounts for us. And there's more I could keep on going on, but this whole psalm is pointing to Jesus. He is how God has been faithful. Jesus did fulfill all the covenants we talked about, but Jesus has ushered in a new covenant. One in which God promised to give his people new hearts and write the law on those new hearts. God had promised hundreds of years earlier in Ezekiel that one day he would replace his people's hearts of stone with living hearts of flesh. The new covenant is the gospel. So I just want to say if you are here and you have not trusted in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, then you are in need of a new heart. For those who have trusted in Christ, they have been given a new heart because they have been recreated. And a Christian lives a life of obedience because God's law is in us. This was all accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. He willingly went to the cross to pay the price for sin for all who would believe in him. And that price was death. And three days later, he rose from the grave and sits at the right hand of the Father. And all who put their trust of salvation in Him, Christ, and Him alone, will be saved. Verse 1 of our passage commands that all the earth should make a joyful noise to the Lord. We didn't really talk about that earlier, but we should say it now. That is a call for all to believe. It looks forward to heaven when every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping God around His throne. So if you haven't yet trusted in Christ and his sacrifice, it's an invitation for you to join the chorus as well. God's steadfast love is not simply a rampant pardon for all. There is no joyful praising to be done unless you've gotten a new heart. So I urge you, friend, turn to Christ today and be saved. If you have any questions about what that means, you can certainly talk to me or anyone you've seen up here or talk to whoever brought you. We would love nothing more than to talk with you about Christ. So I want to close by looking at what this means for us today. I think there's two kind of broad categories. One, we need to approach the Lord. And two, we need to be joyful and thankful no matter the circumstance. Let's start with approaching the Lord. This is one of the most amazing truths of the Bible. Christ, because of his death and resurrection, has provided us with access to God, as we just mentioned. 
The Israelites had only been invited to the front yard of God, so to speak. But because of Jesus, we have access to God's house. We are invited inside. And the key, the invitation to the house party, is Jesus. Let me read Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, which, which spells it out very clearly. Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Our faith in Jesus gives us access with confidence to approach God. Paul couldn't be clearer. Approaching God, entering his inner courts, entering his gates is not just possible now because of Jesus, it is commanded in this passage. Come, Christian. Come close and praise my name. Come close with thanksgiving. To the anxious and nervous, there is relief and compassion when you come near, when you cast your burdens on him. To the one who feels unlovable and feels burdened by sin, there is unending love and grace through Jesus at his throne. To the one who is prone to trust in his own merits and work instead of the cross. You can find rest when you approach. You can praise him for his righteousness and learn to stop relying on your own. Some of us need to learn to come joyfully. Some must learn to come and confess. Some must learn to come and ask for intercession. For him to to step into your circumstance. But we are all called to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Because of his faithfulness. We must come near to our faithful God. And the second thing I think that we need to apply here is that we need to be joyful and thankful no matter the circumstance. This may seem a fairly straightforward application, but I think the passage is making a straightforward point. This passage is a command to be joyful. It is a command to be thankful to the Lord. And while this seems obvious, it does not prove easy for us. We are so prone to wander, to not feel joy and happiness in our Christian lives, aren't we? For most of us, the worries and anxiety of Monday morning have already crept in. Even to our Sunday mornings. How many of you working folks, without raising your hands, have all ready run through their Monday to-do lists or have already played out that upcoming conference call out in their head this morning? How many of you stay-at-home moms have already run through the list of chores and places to drive the kids to and shopping lists and have already thought this morning, how am I going to get all this done? Maybe it's not anxiety for some of you. Maybe instead you're just really struggling through difficulties in life, challenging marriages, rebellious children, a medical diagnosis, depression. It might be tough for you to even get off the couch, much less be joyful and thankful. Some of you have gotten so used to coming on Sunday mornings that if you had to be honest, it's become a bit routine, a bit boring, like the Israelites bringing sacrifices every day. Or you feel so much pressure to follow Christian rules and do good works that church has slowly become a burden or another box to check. Well, the command for all of those situations is be joyful to the Lord. Come before him with thanksgiving. It takes work. But that's what we're commanded to do. And God doesn't give a bunch of caveats to that. He doesn't say, look, I get your circumstance. You can be resentful this week. 
Or you can sleepwalk through this Sunday. I get it. Or today, you should approach me with sadness and despair. I get that. No, the command is be joyful to the Lord. Be thankful. And that's not to say that there's not room for sadness, for moments of despair, for times of struggle. But God's desire for you, his expectation from you is that your posture to him is one of joy and appreciation, even in those times of sadness and struggle. On Thanksgiving, we often turn to a list of ways that God has blessed us in this world. But if that is what we are most thankful for, then we are missing the point. We should be thankful because our only real hope is in Christ. That's our treasure. That is where our joy comes from. The fact that though we are sinners deserving of hell, through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. There's a a hymn, Give Me Jesus, that says very simply this, Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. All the lists of reasons we have to be thankful for God. Homes to live in. Jobs that pay the bills or even barely pay the bills. Children that fill our house with laughter. Financial blessing. Whatever it is that you were thankful for around the dinner table on Thursday. The hymn writer says you can take all of it. Just give me Jesus in exchange. That sounds an awful lot like Paul in Philippians 3.8. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, with that outlook, nothing can steal your joy. Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. His promise of eternal life will not fade. So the joy of heaven is always there for you to look forward to. So this, friends, is the solution to any calamity that may come upon us. If health fades, our joy is in Jesus. When our children reject Christ, our joy is in Jesus. When we experience financial loss or ruin, when our marriages are difficult, when a loved one dies, when we lose our jobs, when we have too much to do on Monday, when we are overwhelmed, we can sing a joyful noise to the Lord because of Jesus. I just want to say to those of you who are tempted to go through the motions at church, whether that's because church has gotten a little routine or because you see it as just a box to check, listen, You need to let the gospel shake you from that this morning. You have been saved and not of your merit. God loved you and you were undeserving of that love. But because of Jesus, you have life. You are invited, commanded to approach the God of the universe and praise him for that, for loving you, for saving you. Sing with joy. This is the true reason for Thanksgiving, Christian. If you know that what verses 3 and 5 say is true, that God is sovereign creator and that he has been loving and faithful through his son, joy and thanksgiving are the only proper response. I just want to say one more thing before we close, and that is something that, we, that should be true of us corporately when we gather as a church, especially when we sing, sing songs together, this should be true. Just like the psalmist was telling the Israelites, when we gather as God's people, in our case, as Christ's bride, we should make a joyful noise, a shout for our benevolent king, 
not reserved half-hearted singing, unadulterated worship. Listen to one last verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. This talks about the church singing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now listen to this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why is that important? Because when we come together as the church, we serve each other. That passage is talking about serving each other, loving each other. And when we sing songs with thankfulness in our hearts, we serve each other. I love that your church, like mine, sings a song to close out our time together. So we have an opportunity to approach him, to joyfully make a noise in honor of him, and to tell him that we are thankful. So let's sing with hearts that know he is faithful right after we pray. God, we are thankful. Forgive us for the times when we're not, Lord, when Sunday mornings become routine, which I think all of us are tempted to. Lord, we just want to praise you this morning for your majesty, your power, and that you would choose to come and love us, to be Yahweh to us, and allow us to approach you. Lord, forgive us when we don't feel like approaching you in your throne, since you've made a way through Jesus. God, we love you for that. We love you for your son. We love you for the gospel that saves. And we thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.